Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. Last year alone, we had 13 companies that defaulted on their financial maintenance company. Insurance companies have embraced new ideas. Cost of capitals has gone up higher. It's critically important what's happening with the jewelry market for gold. The Fed's been trying to fight inflation with these rate hikes. The timing is just perfect. Once the market stabilizes, you should start to see an influx of deal flow. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Welcome back. We've got a great one for you today. Insurance link securities, something that, and that's a class that I don't, don't really know that well, and I'm looking forward to learning all about it from Steve Evans, who's the owner and editor-in-chief of Artemis and Reinsurance News. Um, Steve, welcome. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Stuart. Really good to speak with you today. We're thrilled to have you, and I want to I let our audience know Artemis, it can be found at artemis.bm and Reinsurance News is reinsurance.ne.ws, just to get your, so people can find what you're doing. Before we go too far, what is your hometown, the one you grew up in? What was your first job of any kind, not the fancy one, and a fun fact? (laughs) Oh, okay. That's a good one. So, uh, hometown. Actually, I count both Ireland and England as my sort of homes because I grew up as a child in Ireland. We lived in Dublin, but I was actually born in the UK, uh, in the north of England. And for the last 27, eight years, I've been living in Brighton, which is on the south coast of the UK, about an hour south of London. So Brighton is now my home, but um, I still have a strong affinity with the Republic of Ireland, having spent 14 years there as a child and teenager. Outstanding. What was your first job? Well, I mean, my first paying job was a paper round. So uh, very, very unglamorous at the age of about 11, I guess. But my first proper career job post-college and all of that, I was actually very lucky and I fell into an internet company in 1996. So very early days of the internet. And everything we did was for the insurance industry. Oh, wow. And that's kind of where Artemis came out of as well, because Artemis was 24 years old this year, and I built the first version in late 1998, and we launched it in 1999. And we did some really quite cutting-edge things, like we built a weather derivatives trading platform on the internet in 1998. We did personal injury claims prediction engine that used fuzzy logic in sort of the late 90s as well, which was really the precursor to artificial intelligence. So uh, we were what people now call InsureTech long before InsureTech was actually a thing. Wow. That's so cool. I mean, that could be your fun fact. That is a fun fact. I get. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good fun fact. I mean, I'm impressed, man. It's great. I think I have a, a better one for you, though. So um, obviously, I built Artemis for my employer at the time. I then took ownership of Artemis after that company had been sold. And when I left the people who they sold that company to, I took ownership of it. And it lay dormant for a little while. And I worked in the e-commerce world in travel and retail and things like that, running big e-commerce projects. But... I then took a sabbatical and went traveling, and I actually rebuilt Artemis during a month-long trip through Russia on the Trans-Siberian Express. Oh, wow. Wow, that is cool. (laughs) Look at you. That's awesome. So before we dive into the world of insurance-linked securities, I'd love to know, what was the most unexpected or unusual aspect of 
the ILS market that you discovered when you first entered the industry? So I guess I'd, I'd been sort of schooled in the sort of legacy way of doing insurance and reinsurance. Lloyds of London was a massive component of that, obviously. It was all about balance sheets and all about very strict insurance-related regulation. And then we sort of, I guess it was around, well, it was in 1996, the first year where I was doing that job, and we discovered that there were people in the capital markets who actually appreciated specifically peak catastrophe risk. So earth, earthquake, hurricanes, typhoons, that sort of thing, as an asset class. And that was really fascinating to me because the insurance market is enormous, obviously, has a huge balance sheet of trillions of dollars globally. The reinsurance market is five, six hundred billion in terms of its balance sheet. But then you start to talk about transferring some of that risk to institutional investors in the capital markets, and you're talking hundreds of trillions of dollars are suddenly available. And there were some really enormous investors who appreciated that. That's interesting. So just to kind of level set things, can you define what are insurance-linked securities? Sure. So at their most basic, they are securities. So it's a securitization transaction. And the core risk within those securities is the pure, underwritten, insured catastrophe risk in the majority of cases. So the most basic instruments, are, or the, the longest standing instruments within insurance link securities are what are called catastrophe bonds. And essentially, it's a very tightly controlled transaction that features insured exposures, which are packaged up into something that can be broken down into security notes and then sold to investors in a format where they can put them into their portfolios or funds. And can you kind of help me through how the ILS market has evolved over the years and what are some of the key trends that you're currently observing as your role as editor and owner of Artemis and Reinsurance News? Sure. So the first catastrophe bond came to market in 1996, late 1996. That marketplace grew slowly. Really, the, the main reason for that market emerging was that the largest insurers and reinsurers in the world felt that they needed to diversify their sources of protection. So the capital that they were using, they wanted to access institutional investors who had an appetite for risk. And it was a great way to diversify away from purely reinsuring yourself with another reinsurer, essentially. So it's the kind of thing that a very large global insurer or reinsurer might buy a few catastrophe bonds which make up maybe 10% of its overall protection or something like that. The history of the market sort of, it started off largely cat bond only, but quite quickly, some sort of innovative people in the space realized that the best way to sort of build portfolios and get this out to investors was to start to structure reinsurance in investable forms. And that really was what developed what we now call collateralized reinsurance. I should say that all of these ILS instruments are 100% or very near to 100% fully collateralized, 
with cash or equivalent treasuries, that sort of thing. So they're very, very high credit quality. Whereas when you enter into a reinsurance deal, you are relying on a promise to pay from the reinsurer with a catastrophe bond or a collateralized reinsurance deal. The money is in the bank. It's held in a trust, which is remote, which um, has specific rules around the trust account as to who can draw from it and when. So the investors are protected, but perhaps just as importantly, the cedents, as we call them, the people transferring risk into those structures are also protected, that the capital will be there when bad things happen. And if I understand this correctly, and and I'm going to, at the risk of gross oversimplification, if I'm an investor in a cat bond, my return is driven by whether or not the wind blows, right? It's completely uncorrelated with financial markets, for example, which makes it a very powerful diversifier. Is that fair? Absolutely. From an asset owner point or an asset investor point of view, it's the diversification that they like within this asset class. Um, It is, as you say, uncorrelated with financial markets because the downside comes when a bad catastrophe event occurs. It doesn't go down when there's financial market movements, for example. It's difficult to say something is completely uncorrelated because there can be a reverse correlation. So if you had a really terrible earthquake, that could cause financial markets to fall. But when we have seen that happen, typically the financial markets recover very quickly anyway. So the diversification still is effective. And can you explain the role that Artemis .bm, I want to make sure people can find you. What role Artemis.bm plays in the ILS market and what makes it stand out amongst other platforms in this space? Sure. I guess the role we, I'll take you back right back to the beginning. When we launched Artemis, we felt that the industry needed a sort of place to coalesce around. So a hub that would provide information that would help them do their day jobs. It was a very private marketplace being securities. Um, information was very limited. You you didn't really know what was going on unless you were already involved in that market. And when we launched Artemis, we felt there were about 200 people in the world that we cared about who we wanted to read us. Today, we can do anything over fifty to 60,000 readers in a single month with Artemis. It's very, very widely read, the most widely read by a significant margin on that topic and actually one of the most widely read publications in the world on reinsurance full stop, despite the fact we only cover a very small component of that, really. Our role is to provide transparency around what's going on in the marketplace and to provide information that we feel will help people do their day jobs. We have a very good reputation in the industry. People do rely on us for for the data flow. But we're also very lucky. We have very good relationships with the people in the industry as well, and they're very transparent with us, which helps us to understand the motives on both the sort of risk side and also on the investor side as well. It's interesting. The person that suggested that we meet told me, I mean, we're essentially, we're very similar in our mission right? We're trying to provide a place where insurance investment professionals can come and learn and research and figure out without an ax, right? One way or the other, you know, the only, I mean, your readership 
is just enormous by comparison. And it's, it's really, I mean, I, congratulations to you. That is a real testament. What to your, I mean, it, it's just 50 to 60,000 readers a month is just a mind boggling number to me. So with regard to reinsurance news, how does that relate to Artemis and how is it different? So reinsurance news covers traditional reinsurance in the main. We also cover commercial, specialty, wholesale, insurance industry news that we feel is going to be interesting to people who are buyers or sellers of reinsurance. So it's a much broader scope in terms of the content that we produce. We are essentially just a news platform. We cover the news cycle. We interview people. We produce analysis, reports, thought leadership, that sort of thing. Reinsurance news is incredibly widely read, though. We have peaked. Our peak month so far is around 250,000 readers in a month. It's very, very popular. It is one of the most widely read insurance-related publications in the world now. And really launched that to just provide, similar to Artemis, somewhere that's a reliable, frequent publishing source of insight that people can consume to help them keep abreast of what's going on in the industry. And then people who want to work with us can really know that they're going to get in front of a very large and relevant audience. My career has always been about building relevance in audiences um, online in particular. So um, that's one of the reasons we have the large audience. We we index incredibly well in places like Google. We do incredibly well in social media. And that obviously really helps. Absolutely. After this podcast, maybe you can give me a couple of tips. (laughs) So who buys ILS for protection and why? So the, uh, the biggest buyers would be insurers and reinsurers. They're buying it as part of their reinsurance or what is known as their retrocession. So reinsurance companies buy retrocession, which is essentially reinsurance for a reinsurer. So they're the two main buyers, but we do see some very diverse organizations coming to market and they're largely trying to just access additional capacity or a diversifying source of capacity. So we've seen governments issuing catastrophe bonds or sponsoring catastrophe bonds. The World Bank is very fundamental to the catastrophe bond market. They act as a facilitator and an intermediator to help countries like Jamaica, Chile, uh, Mexico get access to earthquake, hurricane, insurance protection to essentially the governments are buying the protection to fund disaster recovery and also to help them avoid having to issue debt when really bad natural disasters occur. But we also see some really interesting corporate buyers as well. So Google is one example of a company that has sponsored catastrophe bonds to secure earthquake reinsurance protection. We've even seen one of the largest mortgage investors in the world. So they invest in mortgage-backed securities and portfolios of mortgages in the U.S., And they came to market with a cap bond to hedge out some of the earthquake exposure that was within their investment portfolio. So it's quite diverse. That's really interesting. So considering recent global events, I mean, climate change, pandemic, you know, we've got the geopolitical environment is challenging, to say the least. How do you see these things influencing the ILS market? and its prospects for growth in the 
going forward here? So I guess that there's both. <laughs> it has an influence on both sides, one on the potential supply side for risk, particularly when it's climate related. Obviously, climate related risks include weather risks. There's climate influence on hurricanes and things like that. So over time, we would expect people to be buying more protection. That ultimately will result in some more of that protection being bought from the capital markets in the form of ILS. But then on the opposite side, all of these events have an influence on investor motivation and appetite for risk as well. So investors are increasingly wanting to see evidence of how climate risk is being modelled. They want to know that it's being considered and taken account of in the risk metrics for a catastrophe bond covering hurricanes, for example. But also global sort of macro events, such as we've seen in the last few years from pandemic, Ukraine, the effect that we saw in capital markets through really early this year where uh, asset values dropped, that all has a bearing on how much capacity is available to support the capital market. And um, earlier this year, we really did see sort of, I guess, as asset values were dropping across numerous asset classes around the world, some of the biggest investors in the ILS market were finding it difficult to increase and in some cases actually had to decrease because they have, for example, if you're a large pension in Europe, you may have a predefined allocation contribution to ILS, which is maybe 2% of your portfolio. That's sort of a reasonable amount that some investors might target. But when everything else in your portfolio loses value, but your ILS doesn't because it's uncorrelated, they actually, some of them had to reduce their allocation slightly because they had these very strict targets in place. That's interesting. So it was the denominator, what, what the investment community would refer to as the denominator effect, right? The denominator shrinks and the, and the exposure to that particular asset class increases as a result. Yeah. That's really interesting. So just, is it fair to say that how has the market changed over the last decade? How has it developed? And where do you see it going from here? It seems to me that that this market's got a lot of upside from here. But that's just a, me looking at it, and, and it's sort of more of a gut feeling than it is by anything based on fact. Can you kind of help me with kind of developments and then what it looks like going forward? Sure. So the last decade has been particularly interesting. So the ILS market grew quite significantly after the global financial crisis. That was really where large pensions, family offices, endowments, and sovereign wealth funds around the world discovered ILS because the ILS market really proved itself as a diversifier through the global financial crisis. In fact, a lot of hedge funds who were in cat bonds they were the only liquid asset that they could sell and get full value on in 2008, 2009. So actually, hedge funds left the market, but they were very quickly replaced by much bigger, longer-term investors, which was good for the market. But that did drive a lot of capital in. At the same time, the reinsurance market was also growing quite significantly, and we went through what we would call a softening period, where essentially rates and pricing dropped quite a lot. During that softening period, what you also tend to see in reinsurance in general is the terms and conditions end up stretching as well, as they do in other marketplaces. Um, everything's getting cheaper and people are trying to stretch the terms to, to sort of make capital compete 
we then ended up in a period where we were kind of at the, the softest pricing with the widest terms possible. And then 2017 came along and we had three major US hurricanes in a single year. And that caused quite an issue in terms of losses for the space. And that made quite a few investors sort of think again, I guess, and reconsider what they were allocating to and why. 2018 was then difficult again for slightly different reasons. We saw smaller hurricanes, but we also saw the California wildfires that were really significant. And over the last few years, we've also seen major wildfires and floods in Australia and more hurricanes in the US and uh, Japanese typhoons and things like that. So there's been a lot of events that hurt the reinsurance market. Therefore, they end up hurting the ILS market. There were losses to pay. And there's been a period of sort of reflection, I guess. And that reflection has been across insurance and reinsurance. And a big part of that is actually people stepping back to sort of take a view on climate and the contribution of that to their losses, take a view on whether the risk models that people use were accurate and being kept up to date well enough, and also take a view on other macro factors. At the same time, we've had this inflation, which while I guess it's the last year and a half or so, we've seen inflation really big peaking. There's a big feeling in the insurance industry that inflationary pressures, particularly on rebuild costs for property in the United States, had been building up for quite a while and perhaps hadn't been fully estimated in terms of accurate valuations had perhaps not been coming through. They hadn't been updated as regularly as they should be. So we've ended up in this situation where we then get financial macro conditions that are shrinking balance sheets in terms of the asset prices and things like that, because that affected reinsurers as well. And we ended up in a situation with a reduced amount of capacity available. So right now, we are in the hardest market in terms of pricing that we've seen in well over a decade. And that goes for traditional reinsurance and catastrophe bonds and other forms of ILS. And at the same time, because it's a hard market, the capital the risk capacity has much more prominence in the discussion, I suppose. And those terms and conditions that had been widening and loosening are now becoming tighter again. So things are becoming a lot more positive for the deal economics. The economics of ILS are as good as they've been for at least 13 to 15 years, I feel, at this point in time as an investment proposition. Wow, that's fantastic. What usually happens at that point is what's called the insurance cycle, which is where capital now comes into a hard market and serves to soften it again. Do you see that beginning to happen? We are already seeing that happen in catastrophe bonds first, um, because one of the things about catastrophe bonds is they get issued largely throughout the year. So capital flows in sort of outside of the traditional reinsurance renewal dates. We're just coming up to one of the biggest reinsurance renewals of the year, sort of June and July. That's when a lot of the Florida specifically and also US-wide catastrophe contracts get renewed. Um, My gut feel is prices will still go up on last year, but they won't go up quite as far as people had perhaps thought even six months ago. So I, I think we have just about reached the peak and we're maybe in just in the start of a softening of that peak. The question for me now is how 
disciplined the market is going to be going forwards and can we hold the baseline well above where it had got down to in the sort of the mid 2010s because clearly that the pricing had softened so far that things had uh, the economics really weren't in favor of the investors at that point in time very cool i i appreciate your viewpoint i mean you know this market so well i, I think one of the things is about the ils market is it's often viewed as complex and niche what are some common misconceptions that people have about the ILS market that you'd kind of like to set the record straight on? Um, I guess the main one would be, um, and that this gets rolled out by the traditional mainstream press a lot of the time, that people are betting on disaster. It's quite the opposite. People are essentially willing to get paid for taking on disaster risk. And the money that they put in when they lose it goes to refund development, help people recover from disasters. It's essentially insurance capital just coming in in a different form. To me, that's a really important thing because I don't, and the entire insurance and reinsurance industry feel that things are still underinsured globally. I mean, when we see the numbers come out at the end of the year of how much in catastrophe losses they've had in the United States, it transpires that at least 40% tends to be economic and uninsured. So there's a big gap that doesn't get insured, and the insurance industry alone doesn't seem to be able to fill that. Now, obviously, part of that is consumer demand and the willingness to spend money on insurance, but the more capital that comes in, and particularly if that capital comes in with a a view that perhaps it can have a slightly lower cost attached because of the diversification benefits and the fact it comes from very large allocators, then to me that's a very positive thing because it should help to increase insurance penetration ultimately. That's fantastic. I have learned so much. I am now perfectly capable of practicing without a license in the in the ILS market. So that's perfect. <laughs> We've got a wrap question. You can have, this is, I got, People are like, stop asking people why they, you know, what they tell their 21-year-old self because you've asked everybody that. And I'm like, okay. So here's a choice. You get, you get a choice of two. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? Or who would you like, most like to have lunch with, alive or dead? <laughs> uh, I'll go with the best piece of advice. <laughs> okay, good deal. Which actually, actually would have come from the person who hired me back in 1996 and who was really my sort of co-founder in Artemis. He's, he's a bit of a visionary. He remains in the insurance industry at a very senior level, spends a lot of his time thinking about climate change and liaising with uh, all of the biggest actors in the world in terms of the UN and the big multilateral organizations, um, uh, Mankel, Rowan Douglas from WTW. And he really advised me about risk transfer right from the very start because I knew nothing about insurance when I started working for him, apart from how to buy it as a consumer. But he helped me to sort of break things down and think about it in a more simple way in terms of connecting risk and capital and the benefit of capital being available as a shock absorber, essentially, for people's lives, but also for balance sheets and for government budgets as well. Uh, that's fantastic. So. Thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. We've been joined by Steve Evans, who's the owner and editor of Artemis. You can find them at www.artemis.bm and Reinsurance News at reinsurance.ne.ws. Steve, thanks for taking the time. 
Stuart, thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, like us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We certainly appreciate it. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. <laughs>